Well met, friends. I'm Jude Vase. And I'm Steph Midlock. Welcome to Athrobeth, a podcast exploring the brilliant bibliography of Tolkien's Legendarium. Hey, Steph. Hey, Jude. How are you? I'm well. Lots of fun stuff going on right now. We have a packed opening here. Lots of interesting stuff to talk about and a great episode. So I'm very excited for this recording. Me too. Me too. Lead us in. What what do you got going on? Well, as always on our list, we have coronavirus forever. So we will put yeah. our obligatory pleas for the, the love of all Christ, get a, a vaccination and, and save us all. But what the real cool one I've got is I got a fucking sweet Tolkien tattoo about two and a half weeks ago. Put some air horn in here. Yeah. Uh, that is amazing. Tell us about it. Or if you want to tell us about it. Yeah, no, I. it's of Nienna. It's c- kind of an abstract frame around it of like trees. And the trees are kind of half dead and half alive. And she looks sad because, you know, it's Nienna. And it's great. Uh, the, the version of Nienna, I just sent like... Every piece of artwork that I ever liked of Nienna to the artist and sort of vaguely described what I wanted and she fucking crushed it. Shout out to Wendy at Southwater Studios in Ohio. Oh, she really did a fantastic job with it and it came out great. It looks gorgeous. So I'm I'm super, super thrilled with it and I can't wait to do more. It's been a couple of years since I got a tattoo and man, it's like ruffles. You can't just do one. I always get them in, in, in <laughs> multiples. So I got another one coming in January and I expect that will not be the last one either. So, Oh man, it's so it's that's yeah. That once you get the first one, it's a slippery slide in there. Yeah. Boy, where is an area where you would never get a tattoo? I would never get a tattoo anywhere above the neck. Okay. I don't lo- like, like for I think it doesn't look classy to have like, mm-hmm. That's not, that's not true. If that's your jam, that's cool. But for me, I don't really like the idea of being tattooed on the neck. I don't, I don't love. And I think for my particular brand of like old and crouchy and dumb, I think uh, (laughs) uh, uh, neck tattoos (laughs) just aren't my, just don't fit my brand. And then finger tattoos, I think equally, I'm going to go out on the limb and just say, I think finger tattoos look a little, a little, I mean, unless you're Kitty Pride. I think finger tattoos are kind of tacky at this point. I think they're a little played out. You don't want to get like J-R-R-T on one side. Well, now that you've gone and said it, that's not a, you know. No. No. (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) No. uh, There are very, very few cases where I think those like finger tattoos like work. Some people just love them and are all about it. I'm not one of them. Uh, So I wouldn't do them on there. But I don't know. The thing about tattoos is tattoos are super personal. It's like meat is such a fucking garbage platform for intelligence and our bodies are so fickle and weird and anything you can do to feel like the body you've got is more yours and feel better about it and feel more comfortable in it and feel less like it's this fleeting sack of water and meat that's going to fail you at some (laughs) point. Do it. If, if that means sharpen your teeth and put horns on it and tattoo yourself from head to toe, fucking go nuts. I'm all about it. Like whatever you got to do to to feel good about it. So agreed. If you if that's neck tattoos and finger tattoos, I'm certainly not going to drop a dime. It's not for me. But you know what? There's a lot of stuff out there. You know, I'm not going to yuck your yum. So, yeah, seriously, that's amazing. Well, cool. You're going to have to share it on. 
yeah. social media or something. Yeah, I'll put so it on my Twitter once it. it's all fully healed. It's we're we're just out of the peeling stage. So now it feels like a somebody drew it on with a real thick crayon right now. Uh, so once it gets out of the waxy healing phase, I'll put a picture up. That is so cool. Is there anything from Tolkien's Legendarium that like you would not get? I guess it's not really fun to ask those. Tom fucking is. Bombadil. I would. Oh my god, get over Tom Bombadil. <laughs> I like Tom Bombadil. Couldn't pay me enough. I'm gonna get a yellow boot. All right, <laughs> somewhere on my body, uh, just for you, listeners. We have joked about this in the past, but sound off on Twitter. If you want Steph to get a no. Rohan tattoo oh. uh, or a Tom Bobadil <laughs> oh, tattoo, um, no. tell us and we'll start <gasps> We'll start a Patreon and we'll set a goal at which Steph will get, I don't know, like a, a sexy horse tattoo or something. Oh, no, no, no. The How horse is sexy, sexy. Not j- just the horse, like, like, a, like, a, like a horse doing like a, like a no. muscly pose or something. <laughs> Get feller off, get feller off, like giving you the, the eye pose. Giving the stink eye. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think, I think maybe we're going to have to somehow get you to get a pin up Tom Bombadil tattoo. That would, never. He's only wearing it his would boots never and happen. his hat. I would literally peel Ooh. the skin off, off of my back before I would let that happen. All right. Uh, what else have we got in our intro today? Oh, I'm very excited about a new band that's getting started. The band is called Eye of Melian. They haven't released much yet, but they put out like a beautiful kind of minute and a half teaser video. It is made up of folks that I really like from like the that are tangentially connected to the European symphonic metal scene. So it's like the guy who started Delane, this band named Delane, if anyone knows that band. It's also this amazing singer songwriter named Johanna Kurkela, who has done other bands. Her voice is like amazing and elven and beautiful. And so I wrote to them after I saw this come out, I wrote to them and was like, is this going to be about Lord of the Rings? And they wrote back and they were like, yep, well spotted. This is definitely Tolkien inspired. And, uh, and so I'm very excited. So we tweeted about it. If you're interested, check them out. They're on Instagram at eye of million. That is a dope reference in the, for a band name. And I never cease to be amazed and amused by the depth of your knowledge of the European symphonic metal scene. If you've never (laughs) followed, if you, our listeners, don't follow Steph on Instagram, A, you should. Oh, thanks. And B, (laughs) you will have missed out on seeing Steph meet the luminaries of European metal. Yeah. They, oh. Like everybody. It's Amazing the places you've gone and the people you've met in that scene. It's very cool. Uh, I, it is. I'm very. I'm always impressed by all the very cool people you've seen there. You've done some amazing traveling to to see some of these bands, and I'm so jealous uh, of some Thank of the cool you. stuff you've done there. Yeah. If anyone ever wants to learn more about symphonic metal, you should let me know because it is great and fun and beautiful, and you will love it, and I love it, and we can love it together, and that would be great. Every time I see <laughs> Nightwish come up anywhere, I think of you. Oh my God, the gold standard of, of <laughs> metal. Oh, oh my God. Actually, the 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 main guy Thomas from Nightwish, he's married to Johanna, this woman who's going to be the singer for the voice of Melody. Dang. So they're definitely Look at connected. That. It's even got a net wi- a Nightwish connection. What more could you ask for? (laughs) There's, I feel like a lot of that scene is like, how many degrees from Nightwish are you? Which is great. So they're the Kevin Bacon of symphonic metal. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I bet they've never heard that before. Listeners, uh, tweeted us if you know Nightwish and want to be my best friend. Okay, great. What else do we have to talk about? Okay, the Tolkien Society, they have an upcoming seminar. It's their autumn seminar. It is about translating and illustrating Tolkien. It's happening on November 6th, and it's online, and it's free. So, hey... Um, if you're interested, sign up. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, I'm definitely going to go. I'll be there. We too. really enjoyed their summer seminar, didn't we? Yeah, I'll be there yeah. as well, virtually, as it were. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'll be there. Steph will be there. You can be there virtually as well, and you can follow our our twitters and and send us your hot takes and read our hot takes. We can all take hot together. <laughs> I, I love that. That was amazing. Well. We've got many page-strewn paths to tread, so let's begin. All right, so what are we talking about this week? A new book! Woo! That has never... I mean, we've gotten repackagings of existing material before, but hot damn, this is new material by and large, like 85, 90% of what's in this book is new material. It's the nature of Middle Earth and it is edited rather than by Christopher Tolkien as all the previous volumes of the histories and so on and so forth have been done, but by Carl F. Hostetter. It was published on September 2nd of this year. And it contains a whole bunch of unpublished works by Tolkien, as well as some of the author's earlier academic papers from other journals that we'll mention. It's very exciting. Hostetter recounts how he came how he came into possession of this stuff. And it boils down to Christopher sent him a whole shit ton of papers because he was the best qualified over the long course of their letter writing relationship. Christopher decided that he was the right person to publish this very last batch of relevant essays. It has been made clear several times now that this is the last of the non-linguistic writings we're going to get. There's nothing left. We've we've hit the bottom of the well. That makes me sad. Yeah, it makes me sad too. But man, what a way to go out. Yeah. This is a phenomenal volume. And it got a, I bought it three times. I bought the regular edition because it came out a week early in borders here. I bought the Kindle edition so I could make notes on it digitally. And I bought the super, you know, the super fancy pantsy collector's edition. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it is. It's so pretty. All right. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about the editor? Yeah. Carl F. Hofstetter is up there in the echelon of Tolkien scholarship. He started out as a, in the linguistics on the linguistic side of, of Tolkien scholarship by being interested in all the languages. And eventually he came to be head of the Elven Linguistic Fellowship, an organization that studied Sindarin and Quenya and published the two best known journals on Tolkien's languages, Vinyar Tangwar, which he edits, and Parma Eldelamberen. I routinely mispronounce that word and sound like I don't know what I'm talking about, but I promise that I do. <laughs> The group was founded in 1988, and in 1992, Christopher Tolkien created a group of folks consisting of the editors of Elf to publish his father's papers about linguistics. The point being that this group is both very tenured in dealing with Tolkien's 
papers in general and they have a good relationship with the estate. Yeah, I mean, that's huge that he was handpicked because that's, you know, we we know that the Tolkien estate holds their cards very close to their hand all the time, right? And are very yeah. protective of the professor's stuff, which is, you know, understandable. So the fact that they identified this group of, of people as the ones who, who are sort of like, the, you know, the link between the two, that's huge. That's so cool. Yeah. For, I mean, literally for like 40 years now, they have been the conduit through which functionally everything that wasn't being published in the histories got out. Vinyar Tanglar, for a linguistics journal, has been a source of unbelievable material. Some of the stuff that we see that is in this vol in this book, a couple, like two or three things originally was in Vinyar Tanglar, an incredible volume, uh, an incredible journal and really valuable. Carl Hostetter has published tons of stuff in Vineyard Tangwar and in other places. He also co-edited another book titled Tolkien's Legendarium, Essays on the History of Middle-Earth with Verilyn Flieger, who you may have heard of. She's a bigwig in the Tolkien uh, scholarship world. Yeah, just sort of kickstarted it for all intents and purposes. I mean, Tolkien Academia rests on her shoulders arguably just as much as it rests on Christopher's. You know, I found out that we've been pronouncing her name wrong this whole time. It's Verlin. I, it's only because, yeah, Verlin. It's because really? people said it at the conference and I was like, oh, well, it doesn't, I don't think she would mind. But really? The, that's embarrassing. Oh, that's, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, hey, I'm sure, I'm sure she wouldn't mind. She's so cool. Yeah. The essay that I know best by Carl uh, Hostetter is a piece called Elvish as She Is Spoke which is in itself a reference to uh, a very funny language guide that he references in the essay. And it is a piece arguing against neo-Quenya and for the study of Tolkien's languages as an academic continuum, I guess we'll call it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it very much informs his view of canon as well. In a recent AMA on Reddit, he talked about his view of canon, which was that there isn't one. Or there's one and it's everything. Yeah. And the idea that you just have to look at it like, here's everything Tolkien wrote and here's what he published and here's what he wanted to publish. And then here's everything on this massive time scale pre and post those things that he thought. Yeah. And you can pick and choose what you want, what you like about it, but you have to acknowledge all of it. Yeah. In the most recent Oxen Moot, he did, uh, he gave like kind of a, little like interview talk about the new book and Carl mentioned that yeah this thing about canon and how he said <clears throat> that it's it's more important to understand like why Tolkien wrote like this version of this version of this version rather than like the nitty-gritty of each version um and and to yeah. yeah just acknowledge that they're all there and they're all they're all valid so yeah yeah there is no canonical single established version of what happened in Middle Earth yeah there is the story of Mid the story of Middle Earth is as much the story of Tolkien writing it and the the academic description of of that body of work as it is a history of a world. Can I ask you something? Yeah, that's what uh, we're here for. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have talked on this podcast previously about Tolkien's use of framing devices, and mm -hmm. I wonder if you know, for example even though it was deleted in the final version, you have told me that the Silmarillion, you know, had a framing device originally and yeah. that Christopher Tolkien had actually reflected that he was sad that he removed it for yeah. the published version. 
what you're saying about how there's all these different versions, like, and the fact that, you know, we know that the Silmarillion is written by a certain set of people, like a couple of elves, right? And, and yeah, I think to me that lends like, you know, having all these different versions of stories, there's different versions of all of our stories. Right. And it's yeah. not that one's true. It's just a different version. And I think, I, I don't know. I wonder if that, do you feel like maybe that idea of a, fr- of like knowing he loves framing device, does that help kind of let people go, let, let have, having people like let go of that feeling of like, Oh, what's canon. And it doesn't absolutely, matter. Absolutely. No, I think it's a great, that's a fantastic way of looking at it. Like there is no one version. It's, you know, even Tol- Tolkien wanted to put a framing framing device around the Silmarillion that explicitly introduced bias and time and distance into it, so that it could not be con- so that you could not depend on its authenticity or accuracy. It's not meant to be canonical, and yeah. I think that's great. I think the idea you take your own stuff from it. So anyway, yeah. uh, in Elvis, as she has spoke, he's pushing back on the idea of like one Quenya and one Cinderin. There is no such thing. And he's like, if you want to go make your own language and tell everybody that you are, you know, a fan of Tolkien and this is based on Tolkien's works, have at it. But it won't be Tolkien's languages. Tolkien's languages are this very peculiar thing that exists in this spectrum of development that, and it, you can't escape that. Yeah. I've referred to it at times as an academic diss track and I stand by that. <laughs> nice. Anyway, so let's, that's who Carl is, and that's kind of where the book came from generally. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that Carl, not only um, in the forward to the book, but also um, in interviews and stuff, he said this a few times, that Christopher Tolkien before he he passed he was able to to read a lot of carl's work and he yeah. he so and he was really liking the direction everything was going so i think that that's that's really nice because it is sad that you know christopher is no longer with us to to sort of enjoy this this published work as as we all are but it's nice to know that he sort of had you know had given his blessing and and was on yeah. board with it that's i think that's cool so yeah yeah well i mean he handpicked carl to do this work this yeah. wasn't like the estate hired him right he handpicked carl to do this he sent him all this material and he was a- aware of the the sort of precis for the book and what carl wanted to do with it yeah i i have no doubt that christopher would be thoroughly pleased with the result. It follows his, very intentionally, uh, as as Carl says, it follows Christopher's style of presenting the original work, setting the context for it, presenting the material, and then adding some, some footnotes and commentaries, but very much letting the work speak for itself, and then just setting it in its context and, and the various versions. I think he would be thoroughly, thoroughly pleased with it. Yeah. Personally. Awesome. So, well, c- let's talk a little bit about the structure of this book. Yeah. Because it's a uh, big boy. It's a big boy. Yeah, it's a, it's a larger book. And I think it's also worth noting that Carl himself has said in lots of places that he doesn't recommend you sit down and just read it cover to cover. He mm-hmm. advises that you read the preface, the foreword, mm-hmm. the foreword and then read the, the introduction of each section. And then hunt and peck go through and pick out the pieces that are interesting to you. So I think it's useful to look at the, the foreword and the, the sort of the top of each section to get a feel for what the book is. Yeah. I think given that, given that advice, 
I think you can pretty reliably know that the author's intent was that those th- those four things, the forward and those three introductions, should give you a very good idea of what you're getting from the book. Yeah, He intended the book to be a, an overview of Tolkien's, basically it's an overview of his late philosophical thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great quote, which I'm just going to read straight out of the foreword that I think really describes what the book is very well. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, the texts in this volume constitute a significant part and a fuller record of his analytic speculation concerning its underlying postulates. They comprise the writings about Middle-earth and Amun that are of a primarily philosophic or speculative nature that were not included in the latter volumes of the history of Middle-earth, as well as those of a descriptive and or historical nature, chiefly concerning the lands and peoples of Numenor and Middle-earth that were not included in the unfinished tales. So that's a little dry, but I think it really tells you exactly what you're getting. It's the philosophic and the historical essays that didn't make the cut in other for, for various reasons. And you'll see as based on the organization where that goes. And there's some fascinating stuff in here. Uh, really great stuff. So it's divided into three parts. Mm-hmm. The first is time and aging. Mm-hmm. The second is body, mind, and spirit. And mm-hmm. God, you can imagine how I plotted when I read that. <laughs> and the third is the world, its lands, and its inhabitants. Yeah. I, I loved this section. I yeah, this is this is great. Okay, look, I'm gonna level with you, re- listeners. You know that I don't like to read. Okay, <laughs> reading's not my fit. No, I like to read. Come on, I like to read. I'm just it's 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 not something I fit in. I'm not one of those people that like can stay up reading. I fall asleep immediately um, because I'm a dumb. But this book is great because it is broken down into these little thematic chunks and the chunks are very easy to digest. They're like, some of them are a little bit longer, but there are some that are like just a couple pages, right? And it gives you just a nice little snippet of of these kind of thematic things like hair or beards or whatever you want. And it's, yeah. so it's really easy to go through and like pick and choose what you're interested in, um, you know, within all of these different parts. So it is really a pleasure. It's a pleasure to read. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what part I liked the most. So I basically, I don't know what you did, Jude, but, you know, Jude and I decided that we weren't going to do an entire, like try to read the entire thing because, you know, as Jude mentioned, this is probably going to be the last major publishing of, of Tolkien's writings we ever get. And we, we decided together that we did not want to rush through this. So we both said, let's, you know, we're going to read, as Carl said, we're going to read the foreword and we're going to read the introduction for each of the three parts, which is what he said. And then we were going to both pick and choose what we wanted. And then we're going to come together and talk about it. So that's what we're doing in this episode. And, It was so fun. I could have kept going. Like it was great. I, and I'm and I intend to keep going. But boy, I just loved. And I I like that you and I chose different sections. It seems like Jude. Yeah, very and very little. We we're overlap very much in on our, our shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's interesting that this book is subject matter wise. It's the deepest of deep ends. This book is not particularly accessible to the <laughs> casual fan. It isn't. It isn't. No, there it are is parts. Though. Yeah. It, well, there are some parts yeah. that, like, do you want to know like a little more about Lembus or read a, a deleted Legolas scene? We got you. Yeah, do you yeah, want to yeah. read a whole bunch of pages about Tolkien agonizing over how long a valiant year is and why that matters? That's a little more particular. And like, 
not every not every fan is going to get into that. And <laughs> there and are some the sections there it, that are real nerpy. <laughs> and like I got way into that. Like there was, there, yeah, there's some stuff in there that's real particular, and there's some stuff that's that's more accessible. But I I really appreciated all of it. Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about the forward, please. Carl starts the forward by basically saying, I just said basically. Did you hear that? It's like I'm from yeah. Barcelona. So Christopher Tolkien in his forward to Morgoth's ring said that Tolkien had a lot of theological and metaphysical stuff to work out before he could finish the Silmarillion. Okay. And these were like big complicated topics like death and immorality and immortality of the elves and the myth of light. And the, you know, these are like big, big, big things like the corruption of Arda. This is not just like easy breezy stuff he had to work out. These were big things. So, yeah. So, uh, so Christopher publishes a lot of this quote unquote, like stuff in Morgoth's ring and in the subsequent like history, uh, volumes of the histories of middle earth. Right. But not all of it. So this book, this book, uh, edited by Carl is going to be of interest to those who enjoyed like the last few volumes of the histories, because it's going to build on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, which is kind of what we've been saying. Right. Yeah, he talks a little bit about um, Carl, like, introduces his own work and the stuff that, you know, in his relationship with uh, Christopher Tolkien, which we've told you about a little bit. You know, and what one thing he said was that he, in the past, focused on linguistics a lot. Okay, so a lot of these, some of these writings have shown up in Vin Yartanguar and the other, um, that other one that we can't pronounce. Parma Eldalambaran. Okay, see, you're, that's good. You sound amazing. But what he said he's done for this particular book is he's stripped out like some of the very dense, like philological, philological. Yeah. So they've taken a lot of that out. Um, there's still obviously some in there for sure, but it's not quite as dense in the linguistics as his, as the other writing. So it, so I think it does sort of open it up for more casual fans like me. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So basically in the late summer of 2008. Hey. Yeah. Hey, Steph. What? You're not a casual fan anymore. <laughs> no, I'm so casual. You, you have a, a Tolkien podcast and you ha- at regularly attend academic Tolkien conferences. <laughs> you don't get to call yourself a casual fan anymore, but. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. And uh, yet, the, honestly, the more I listen to this podcast, the more I listen to you, the more stuff I learn. So that's really helpful. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Continue. Sure. So in the late summer of 2008, Christopher started sending Carl batches of photocopies of like this large bundle of late manuscripts called Time and Aging. And they sort of featured like long tables and calculations on the, you know, the the rate of population growth of the Eldar. This research material from the bundles, as well as research from the Bodleian Library archives in Oxford, as well as Marquette University, that's what makes up this volume. Um, So we're getting lots of good stuff in here. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about part one, time and aging? Yeah. So sometime between 1951 and 1957, Tolkien made a, a fairly large decision with regards to Middle Earth. Two of them, actually. The first is that he didn't want Arda to be mythological, basically. He wanted the sun and the moon to have the same date of origin as Arda. He, this, this is mentioned a little bit in 
Myths Transformed, which is the, the back section of Morgoth's Ring. But the idea that this is the idea that he he didn't like the he didn't like the idea that for a people obsessed with stars, that like the heavens would be like fake and that like astronomy wouldn't be a real thing until later and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so he wanted the sun and the moon to be astronomical objects from from the time of creation. And so this is different than like, because the original thing is like that they were made from the last flowers of the two trees, right? Yeah. This opens up a whole fuck ton of problems. <laughs> he also, this also changes the number of sun years in a single year of the trees known as a valiant year. He increased it from 10 sun years to one valiant year to 144 sun years to one valiant year. This hugely expands the time scale of a lot of things that happen prior to the Noldor fucking off into Middle Earth. <laughs> so all of a sudden, everything got a lot longer, right? So people, so I, I guess I can't really contextualize this. So remember, we talked about our, our episode on, on all the elven kinds. Yes. And we talked about all the time that they spent like in Amon before they before they, or all the time they spent in Quivien and just hanging out before the El, before the, the Valar found them, and then all the time they spent traveling. Okay. All of that time is is documented in Valian years. Okay. So oh. what previously had been like 300 Valian years to get, like 30 Valian years to get from, uh, to get across a continent, suddenly became like, Four hundred, four hundred years, and okay. three hundred years spent doing something becomes thousands of years. Okay, and thousands of years becomes tens of thousands of years. Whoa. Okay, so big implications here. Yeah, this changes enormous amounts of things. It changes the the whole chronology of the first age, the awakening of the elves, like I said, the great march, and the return of Morgoth. All of this stuff is changed. It also eventually changes the timing of the growth of the and aging of the elves because they were originally all of that information was originally set down in valiant years this section is fucking wild um <laughs> there is some bananas stuff in this section so like yes not only does it talk about the implications of these time changes and it's tolkien doing like a buttload of hand math apparently there's some unbelievable stuff fit in here to try and make all this work. And then as he's working it out, he's talking about, he's like going over the timeline and like just throwing new information that we've never seen before into the timeline as he's <laughs> casually working through it. And wow. we'll talk about that in a second. Okay. Yeah. But we'll, when we talk about the stuff we loved about this section, yeah, uh, I have sure. a couple, there's a chapter called key dates, which is just like, you know, you think it's going to be just like a bullet point of like the trees and this, then that. And it's like, Oh no, I'm just going to like, answer questions you've you know that have been bothering you for your entire history with with Tolkien you know no big deal <laughs> that's amazing he said in that interview that I that I saw of him of his that don't if, if um if the numbers and those charts like kind of make you uncomfortable like don't worry about the specific numbers but just read the information around them you don't because you yeah. don't need to get lost in the numbers but only the num only like the the aging nerds like uh jude over here needs yeah, to worry no, about it, that it very much is like uh <laughs> whose line is it anyway the numbers don't matter yeah uh, it, it, very much carl talks about the ways the elves grow in age more slowly in body than men but quicker in mind mm-hmm 
And yeah, we've he, talked about that on the podcast before, right? Yeah, we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Um, he talks about how Tolkien creates a real feeling to the matters of elvish growth, population, and migration. And I agree. I think that's one of the most interesting parts is mm. Tolkien imparts a, a really deep verisimilitude to the idea of the growth. And it feels incredibly, it really feels like this is some guy like trying to make sense of a bunch of population numbers and being like, how did I get this so wrong? And being like, <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that Valiant years were this, not that. And like, yeah trying to like fix all this math before, before he's got a report due to a superior. Like it, it's crazy how, how real it feels. It's great. Yeah. It's very cool. And he then, he sort of ends the, the, the introduction to part one by, you know, kind of talking about the Hroa and the Thea, right. Meaning body and spirit, yep. um, which we talked about on the podcast a long time ago, but, and so I don't yep. know if it's like, we might be not as good podcasters back then, but, I think there's good information there. So, but it's, uh, that was cool to see that. So thanks. Uh, you, you, you yeah. were the one who gave me that, that foundation. So yeah, that was great. So tell me about some stuff that you loved. Okay. So the big one for me, <laughs> key dates, man, talk about burying the lead. Like again, <laughs> you think it's going to be just like first there were the trees and then there was the fruit and blah, 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 blah. No, no, no. <laughs> it's like, He's going through this timeline and he's like, oh, yeah, by the way, have you ever wondered what happened to those first elves? And I go, yes, all the time. Like when I'm taking a shower, I sometimes just ask myself, <laughs> what happened to the first elves? Wait, so why those are the ones we just talked the ones, about them. Yeah. yeah. Where, what happened to the what happened to the first generation of elves? Why are they not the ambassadors? Why are they not the ones that ended up leading the three clans of elves? So what's those the are answer? good questions. Those are good answers. And he's just like, oh, I'm just going to answer that question. Super cash. The answer, it turns out, is that they were kind of dicks. <laughs> they they send. Oh, I'm shocked. They send the their, these this younger generation of elves to Amon to see the light. And they get back and they're like, this shit's dope. Let's go. And they're like, nah, we're in charge. We're the bosses. We sent you to go look, but like, you don't count now. And they're like, well, you kind of made us ambassadors to talk to our people about it. And what ends up happening is the entire unbegotten, as they're called, generation, that whole first generation that wasn't born, that, mm -hmm. that, that, that uh, woke up the original 144. Oh, right, right. And like the whole, like the whole, like first 20, 20, like 20 odd generations of elves are just like, nah, fuck it. We're yeah. good. That's like when he talks about the Avari in the Silmarillion, you think it's like a few discontented individuals. No, yeah. it's like 20 generations of elves <laughs> and not like <laughs> the random ones, like the oldest 20 generations of elves, which are these enormously old and powerful people are like, no, nah, we're good. Like we don't want to go. Yeah. They don't want to go. They become mm -hmm. Avari. My, I spent the whole day after I read that wandering around with my head in a million pieces. What? Like, hold on a second. What the fuck are the Avari? <laughs> hold on. The Avari <laughs> are the elves who refused the summons to Amon and stayed, oh. stayed in Kuivianen rather than begin the journey. Kuivianen is a lake, right? Yeah. It's 
the mirror of awakening. It's where the elves first awakened. Right. It's okay, the original okay. elven homeland. Oh, oh, the Avari. Oh my God. It's so interesting, dude, that we literally just talked about this and now it's, yeah, yeah. Cause and it now was right it's on different. my mind and it was bothering me when I made that episode. Like what the fuck happened to the original to Imin and Tata and like the original fathers of elf kind. And it's like, Oh, well they refused to give up their authority uh-huh. and wanted to stay in Quivienen. And so there they still are, I guess, or maybe they're all dead because apparently Quivienen got fucked up in, in the, the last war with Morgoth. So who knows what happened to them? Wow. Oh, wow. Not to be Owen Wilson, but wow. 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 Oh, that wow. is big. Wow. wow. Oh, wow. So oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, we just owned right off of our Wilson right there. That was amazing. Wow. Jeez. Uh, wow. Uh, wow. Can I ask so, you a question? Please. And you may, this is coming from something that I want to talk about later. But so if someone were to say to you, Melian at Quivienen, what does that mean then? Was Melian at Quivienen? So one of the other things in this section that is kind of buck wild is uh-huh. he introduces the idea that maybe. They, so Orme in the Silmarillion, Orme goes over and he's like, yo, what up? I'm a Valar. And the elves are like, oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> and then they get over it. And eventually he takes the ambassadors over. Uh-huh. Orme comes back and Orme leads them on this big fucking journey. He introduces a different version in this key date section where, oh. where Orme comes back and he brings Melian and oh. the wizards. Oh, yes, the, right, the wizards. And, and it's so, it's, you know, somebody on Reddit said it better than I possibly could. And he's like, it's, it feels very Star Wars prequels where you're oh. like, oh, look, there's Chewbacca and Yoda. And like, why are my favorite characters randomly showing up in this scene <laughs> and they have no business being there? Like, it's very bizarre that like, the wizards would show up here like, wow, that's so okay. Wow. Yeah. So uh, that's yeah. huge. That's huge. But he, he never like says it. He kind of like floats it. Like, is this too weird? Maybe this is too weird. It's a little weird. But, I don't know about that. <laughs> so yeah, that, that was my, that was like for part one, that was hands down the part that just like set Killed fireworks me. off in my skull. And I, hope that there is fan fiction being written right now about like the fucking Avari civilization that rose up in the absence of the Valar. Oh my God. Listeners, if you want Jude to write fan fiction about the Avari, please let us know on Twitter with the I mean, hashtag. I might have to, because I just, the, the whole concept of elves absent the interference of the Valar and not just any elves, but like the oldest goddamn elves. Like it just blows my mind yeah. that like they're, they were just out there. Like there's, they could still be out there is what you're saying. Complicated. Oh, because Quivienen, I believe it's explicitly said that it gets trashed when What does Melkor trash it. That guy loves trash and shit. I believe it was, I, I feel like I read that it was destroyed during the the war of wrath with Morgoth. Oh, meet more. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dang. But I could be mistaken. 
all I'm going to say is like, okay, I guess the Avari are the one group in the entirety of the world that does not get FOMO because they did not want to (laughs) go. No, they, they were super like, that was the big one for me. Um, I'm assuming that you had other stuff. Oh, you know what? I tend to, I just read a few of the different chapters from there and it was mostly, honestly, I kind of stuck to stuff that you and I, that you had talked to me about on the podcast in the, in the past. So like, you know, again, like the aging of the elves and stuff. And I, I wrote a note here. I don't know. Tolkien writes a lot about how like he's really talked a lot about like the begetting of children and how like that all happens like in the earlier part of the elves lives and then for the rest of their lives they're like we're just going to develop our minds and all i'm going to say is clearly this was written before there was viagra because not anymore well but he also he also does say that like they like a good shag like he makes (laughs) he makes it clear that like they still they still get it on for funsies he mentions that yeah it's yeah but yeah, the elven life cycle is a weird thing that he introduces that he talks about a lot in that section. Yeah. But I I thought it was fascinating. And I think that's going to inform a lot of interesting, like sort of analysis of how his elves are acting based on like life cycles and that kind of stuff. I think it adds an interesting context to to looking at elves in terms of what kind of what is that what where in the life cycle are they and what is how has yes. the events of Middle Earth interfered with their net, their the way they're supposed to be living that life cycle? That's actually a really good point. He makes the point that like there's a time of renewal where they sort of like retire for a while and like just go hang out and chill. And I, I I'm glad that that is a thing because I always that that sort of bugged me. Like, why is it so and so getting involved and, and like helping out? You know, and it's like, well, they're probably like off the grid right now. They're probably in Fiji, just like living out their life over over the ocean. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like not that, yeah. but they're like going on they're doing an eat, pray, love right now. So we're doing yeah. <laughs> you know, they're not in the office at the moment. Yeah. And I like that. Uh because of course if you're gonna live for thousands of years, you y'all gotta take a break. Everyone yeah. needs a weekend once in a while. Shoot cool yeah it was a great section i yep. know you're dying to talk about part yeah let's talk two, about though. part two body mind and spirit similarly uh by the late 50s tolkien had begun spending a lot of time writing about the nature and relationship between the spirits fair and bodies heroa horror he has an interesting it's interesting that he gives different plurals in this mm, than we previously yeah. had i always learned it was fair and horror but he gives four and rare, which is weird. And my, I, my body, my, like my brain doesn't want it, but yeah, spirits <laughs> and bodies in our, in our, uh, incarnates, elves and men and the union, uh, the union of the body and the soul and so forth. Yeah. He took these metaphysical thoughts, like kind of all the way down to some weird philosophical <laughs> and, and biological paths and came up with some kind of buck wild and, ends like the nature of being an identity and also finger counting games <laughs> and who's got a beard and what about free will like i know <laughs> he's all it's over the fucking map yeah hostetter talks about the metaphysics of tolkien's work being very firmly catholic specifically informed by the metaphysics of St. Thomas Aquinas, which was in itself informed by and influenced by Aristotle's metaphysics, mm-hmm. which I think is very accurate. We've talked about the book, The Flame Imperishable. Yes. By Macintosh. And I 
highly recommend that if that is a subject that interests you, you should check it out. Hostetter himself calls it out as sort of the indispensable work on the subject. And I cannot recommend the book enough. It's fucking fantastic. I'm a huge fan of that book. So he talks uh, really interesting. I was not expecting to go to get into like prime matter and the idea of like fundamental physics and stuff in this section. But there we are. Yeah. We get Quenya <laughs> words, f- Erma for physical matter, which is like undifferentiated matter. And then, you know, slapping patterns into it and stuff like, like that. Meat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We get some real like Aristotelian metaphysics and stuff. It's it's buck wild. That's really cool. And then as opposed to like the spirit, which is got your God given form that yeah. makes you who you are. Right. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Oh, I also like that he he boils down the beard issue very simply. It's like, look, are you a dwarf? Okay, you have a beard. Are you a human? Then you can have a beard if you want one. Was one of your parents a human? Then you might have a beard. But that's it. You have to be a dwarf or... Does he mention dwarves? Well, no. I mean, he mentions in other places dwarves have beards. Yeah, because not in the dwarf section. Not in this. But in this section, in in the beard section here, he's basically saying... Unless one of your, unless there was human fucking in your, in your history, you don't have a beard. Oh my God. You're ridiculous. Or if you're, if you're, if you are a kingly royal family of Numenor with some elf stuff, blood happening, then you don't have beards like Aragorn. Right. Yeah. Or like Denethor or Imrahil. Anyway. Yeah. That's it. I don't know. Yeah. It was basically about fucking. The gist is that elves (laughs) don't have beards. Humans do have beards. So if it's an, if there's anyone remotely elfy with a beard, it's because they fucked a human in somewhere in the past. And if there's a human that can't grow a beard, either they've got male pattern baldness or they've got elf blood. One of the two. Side note, throwing this out there, a little <laughs> oh bit of cross podcast pollination. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski steals this idea whole cloth. Among other things even though he doesn't like to admit it, for the Minbari. The Minbari don't have beards, except some do, and the ones that do, it's because they're descended from Balin, who was, spoiler, a human. I have no idea what you're talking about. That's fine. Uh, Minbari are space elves, and Balin was a human who became a Minbari, and, like, he's basically the the B5 version of a half-elf. Do you mean Babylon 5? I, I yeah, don't, Babylon I've never 5. Seen it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he goes out and, uh, yeah, starts stupping Minbari and puts his human DNA out into the pool. And all of a sudden, you've got Minbari with beards. Yeah. Any, if any of our listeners, you may not know this, but Jude has another podcast about Babylon 5. And you can listen to that and learn more. <laughs> uh, I feel obligated to give a content warning that if you think I'm a, if you think I'm a fucking screwball on this one, I am <laughs> restrained. And classy here compared to uh, (laughs) what I get up to on that podcast, which is primarily thirsty takes about Jakar and talking about alien dicks. So, oh, my, you're uh, you have been warned. Let's talk about uh, what we liked about part two. Okay, what you like everything. This whole section is fantastic. I had already read the Elven reincarnation one because I spent forty nine dollars to import a copy of this French Tolkien book, which had a an English translation of the article about elven reincarnation. Oh, wow. But if you had not done that, which I recommend you don't, because that's a lot of money for a book you can't read. 
<laughs> uh, the Elven reincarnation piece is fucking dope. It's really good. I actually really like the hands, fingers, numerals one. Oh my we, gosh, me too. I took so many notes on that one. Why? It's a, it's, it's a really weird, interesting piece. It um, is. It's about how like elves regarded their hands with like great personal importance and that was like second only to like their head and face and like that there are all these like different hand gestures that the elves had. They yeah. help, you know, they hold their hands open to mean something and blah, 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 blah. it's yeah. great. It's super interesting. Can I tell you, this is this exact section is is where I had this crystallizing moment of one of the many reasons I love Tolkien, which is you can be reading about something like hand gestures or finger counting games, and then out of left field, you're going to get some fucking very interesting information about something you didn't consider. So like in this, all of a sudden there's a paragraph about, you know, the ancient elf Celebrimbor or silver fist. It's, it's in a section where he's talking about elves and making fists. Right. And he talks about how like, Blah, blah, you know, I don't know. I just, you just don't expect to hear about Celebrimbor and his deep loving affection and friendship with the dwarves of Moria in the middle of like a section about finger game. It was so cool. And I was yeah. also like, this is silly. What are we doing? I love it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. The, 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 yeah. The hand stuff was, was fantastic. I also liked the same one, another section you called out the gender and sex section. Yes. Um, the fact that there is, no linguistic construction for gender in the language. Yeah. Instead, the distinction is between the animate things or like speaking peoples, right? Yeah. Everything that lives and reproduces versus inanimate or physical objects. Yeah. So there's. And so, yeah, that. Yeah, there's, exactly. There's meat, there's thinking meat, and then there's rocks. Yeah. And beyond that, the elves don't give a shit. They, I love that. That's great. Yeah. That is so wonderful and very refreshing and i just i think that is excellent yeah a lot of a lot of languages lack that but i think it's an interesting feature of the language certainly oh absolutely we've talked about the osanwe kenta piece before but it was cool to see it here again because i hope more people read it yeah. um it's a f buck wild piece that just sort of like casually was like oh yeah by the way elves are telepathic yes no big deal um yes <laughs> just you know, mind pictures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like, by the way, they can totally like, you know, talk to each other by mind. And you're, you know, that's what Galadriel was doing all those times. And you're just like, oh, okay. Oh, yes, exactly. Oh, that's so But good. I love, I love it. But I just like, I'm glad that it's getting printed somewhere bigger. Cause previously it was in like Vineyard Tangwar and like, yeah, that's not a thing everybody reads, but like hopefully a lot of people read this and we'll know about yeah. it now. We talked about it on the podcast a little while ago, so I had some um, basis for that. That was yeah. really great. Yeah, uh, exactly. That's not something I would have read normally. So and it's nice that it's in this little chunk here in the book. It's great. I really liked the sections of the really kind of basic section about like hair and beards. <laughs> We've talked a lot about beards, but I did want to mention the hair section too. It's because it basically just tells you like whose hair was like what color, but it also talks about like the linguistics behind the word for like shine and glitter, which is like 
it's always like something where you're like reflecting radiance. And so like yeah. the name Gilgalad, right, means um, star of radiance. And it's because his like silver hair and his armor could reflect all light, even moonlight it could reflect. So I thought that was kind of cool. And also Galadriel, who's a, a kinswoman of Gilgalad, means that means lady of the radiant crown. Um, which refers to her shining golden hair, which again, if you know the Lord of the Rings well, and Gimli asked for the hair, I don't know. It's just, that's one of those little moments that like brings it all together for me. I I like that. So that was cool. Yeah. Yep. I also liked the, there was a section called description of characters. Basically. Okay. A map was made in 1970 by a lady named Pauline Baines. And she, on the map, she drew like the fellowship and a bunch of other like orcs and stuff. And Tolkien liked a lot of what she did, but he had the, cause he's, he's him. There were a few things that he didn't like and he didn't think she got quite right. And so he goes through and writes a better description for these. And so it's like Gandalf, like Legolas, like Shelob, you know, just a few, like the black riders, Gollum. I really liked that part because I just felt like it was very like, yeah, that's him on his shit. No, like just make, it's gotta be perfect. It's gotta be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. Cool. So part three. Yes. Is the world and the world, its lands and its inhabitants. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in part three by 1957, Tolkien had decided that the sun and the moon came into being at the same time as Arda, which we've talked about in the past. Yep. Uh, and not from the flowers of the two trees. And more importantly, that the elves knew this was an astronomical fact. That's important. Yeah, because now he's got this new dilemma. How to, how to combine the, these two things. There's okay. these myths, which he is deeply invested in, with the, the two trees and the lamps and the fruit and the, the sun and the moon being people. Mm-hmm. versus the reality of what he wants to d- depict. Mm-hmm. So how do you, what do we do here? Or like, yeah, against science, right? So it's like myth versus science. How do you yeah. balance that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So Carl presents this idea that he thinks that if Tolkien had had Iluvatar demythologize Arda and Ea at the same time as he made the world round after the downfall of Numenor, he could have preserved both his mythology and a bit of modern science and saved himself a lot of time and doubt. I don't altogether agree with this. Okay. Can you break it down for me a little bit? I don't fully, yeah. I, I kind of glazed over so a little bit. So what he's saying here is in the Silmarillion, when Numenor falls, Iluvatar rounds the world, right? Oh, okay. Yes, that's important. <laughs> and to take to take Valinor off the map. Yeah. Well, wouldn't Valinor just slid to the other side of the round no, but thing? That's like part of the thing is that it like, Valinor is removed from the map so that the the straight the straight road no uh-huh. longer oh. like follows the curve. It now goes out into the question mark question mark question mark. What's the straight road? I'm sorry. I know we talked about it, but I forgot. Uh, the straight road is the road to Valinor. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Uh, so Valinor is now gone. Yeah. And so he's saying what what Carl is saying here is if Tolkien had just said that when the world was rounded and Numenor sunk and the world locked in, Mm -hmm. if he had just said, okay, well, now we're going to take all that mythology, that mythological version, and we're going to like, and it never was like, like just delete it. Yeah, we're going to retcon it. So now it's always been stars and it's it's always been this way. Okay. But you you still remember all these stories. Right. 
but it's never been that way. I, I have uh, changed the world such that now it has always been this way. Yes. So, so he demythologizes God, it. Yes. Because it is Ilavatar doing that, right? That's what his yeah, point. I have thoughts about that. I think, don't get me wrong, it works. Mm-hmm. But it, for one, it doesn't solve Tolkien's problems. Okay. <laughs> because a lot of the problems he's got are involved with the timing of, of various things with regards to the sun and the moon. And it, it only solves his problems by cheating, <laughs> so to speak. That's how I like to solve problems. I don't know. Cheat I, them I, away. I, don't, I don't find it very satisfying, frankly. Okay. I, I understand where Tolkien's coming from in it, that he has this desire to have, he starts out with this desire to create a mythology for England, but mm-hmm. he also wants it to be a, an actual world. Okay. And that means that he wants it to be, to, to, to follow enough of the rules to be a real world. Uh-huh. And that's a contradiction. Yeah, right. Because he, he you know, he's written all these terrific myths. Here's my yeah. problem with, okay, I've, I've, I've arrived at my, at my, my problem with, with Hostetter's uh, <laughs> solution. And also I think my, my sort of thoughts on this. Okay. Hostetter's solution is a world builder's solution. It's a fantasy writer's solution. How so? It's not Tolkien's solution because Tolkien's okay. solution is as an academic and as a, an archivist. So can you talk about the differences between those two distinctions? Yeah. Like world building versus archivist? Yeah. It, a world building solution involves some, the world being transformed from a mythological one to a rational one is mm-hmm. absolutely something that somebody's done in a, in a fantasy novel. Okay. Like, totally. But it's not something that you would write in a myth. Mm-hmm. It can't, it's the kind of, it's, it's not something that could be recorded in a myth or recorded or, or somehow cataloged in a way that someone who was finding a cache of documents could understand and record. Because that was always how Tolkien thought of himself was as like a, a a recorder of Middle Earth and like an archivist of all these, of, of all these papers that of the Silmarillion that he had, he had found. So yeah, that's right. A transformation of the fundamental facts of the world. I think he would have found very unsatisfying Mm. because it would have meant like a cheat and there would have been, he would have no way of knowing that. Like it it just, it doesn't solve anything for him and it doesn't, you know, there, there's no way for him as a, as a, as a recorder of that history. And as a translator of these documents, there's no way for him to know that that happened. Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. That makes you know, sense. Yeah. I th- it feels like it takes, I don't know, some of the magic out of it a little bit, right? I yeah. Don't know. So I, I get that it solves the problem, but I don't think it solves it the problem in a way that Tolkien would have found satisfying. Okay. That's good. That's, yeah. I think we can agree to disagree. Anyway. Yeah. Do you want to tell me about things you liked about it? Yeah. I believe I'm well on record as being a Finrod fanboy. So you I love really, Finrod. <laughs> I really loved the bit on the founding of Nargothrond. Uh-huh. I love the little description of like how nobody really understood where he got the nickname Felagund. And then it, it turns out it's like a weird name that means like badger buddy or something like that. Um, 
wow. Because he dug these, he he dug this den off the the river Narog. I I just love the whole section. It's a the the poor the poor petty dwarves really got fucked. Yeah, I know. I, I'm not even sure what they are. Like it's never really clear what the hell the petty dwarves were. Uh, but they got screwed. <laughs> so yeah, that was my big my big one. There, this section did not have as much for me. Mm-hmm. I liked it, but I didn't re- I did not read as much of this section as the others. I focused on the first two. Yeah, I I actually will say that I had that same thing. I I was like very yeah. I had just sort of honestly ran out of time a little bit on the third section. But there are so many like subheadings that I want to look at, like the, I'm really interested in the Numenorians and their beasts and all the stuff. Yeah. Um, so I definitely need to get back to that. Um, I read, I received this, a lot of people were able to get their hands on this book a little early, which annoyed me because I pre-ordered it forever ago and I still didn't get it until a little while after everyone else. But I got it right at the end of Oxenmoot. And so I was very sleep deprived and like very emotional because the end of Oxenmoot is very emotional and like you, you go to the grave and it's a thing and I cry and so I read the section on making Lembas bread like right as because I literally opened the package like as everything was ending and like so I read that section first because I was like I'm tired and stupid like I'm just going to read about bread and it was so beautiful I cried (laughs) (laughs) because it's just it's like two little like not myths but like yeah writings about Lemus bread and how like I didn't realize that it because okay I love that part in the movie where like in Pete Jackson's movies where the where the little guys eat all of it and then they get kind of sick right we can all we've all been there right But, yeah. like, I didn't realize that it was, like, so special. And um, the Lemba spread, like, was for the long journey, right, from Valinor over here, right, to Middle-earth. Yeah. And and that it's very special to make it. And that only, like, a few people, like Galadriel and her daughter and, and her granddaughter, Arwen, like, knew how to make it. And and now, and I guess I cried because it basically it says that when Gladriel went back and when Arwen died, it's like lost to Middle Earth forever. And I just like was like, I couldn't take it at that point. I was like <laughs> weeping over bread. Now I'm also on a diet. So that could be why I was crying over bread, but whatever. <laughs> a little bit of everything. I regularly cry over the fact that Ohio does not have good sourdough. So I feel you. Oh. I can, I'm going to have to send you some out. That's amazing. Dude, but I also, would, I love my budget, oh. my, my, uh, what's it called? My sourdough S- shipped to Ohio budget is not small. <laughs> do you really do that? Yeah. The, uh, oh, what is shit. it? The one in San Francisco that's up Boudin? on the pier. Boudin. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I order like big boxes of Boudin bread and stick it in the freezer and then heat it back up. Cause you just get, you know that shitty French bread you get at Safeway? Yeah, it's fine. I remember yeah. you eating that with a block of cheese, no, I think, no, I'll, when we I'm were not, young. I'm not talking about the Santa Cruz sourdough. <laughs> James, you'll have to cut this out because this is not remotely interesting to anybody. Um, you know, like, <laughs> not, I'm not talking about the... Uh, I'm not talking about the baguettes or the Santa oh, Cruz sourdough you get on the end cap. I'm talking okay. about the actual Safeway brand loaf of sourdough, which yeah. is like a, like a shitty... yeah like it's fine couch pillow consistency <laughs> loaf of bread with crappy crust and you tear it open and it doesn't even smell altogether sour. Yeah, no, I know it's not good. That not- would be considered like the best sourdough made in Ohio. Oh, Ohio. It's okay. You they, have other insta- good things. Not bread. Like not bread. No. <laughs> 
Dude's also crying the best they've got is this horseshit Italian bread, which is like like that, except with less flavor. It's the same consistency. It's like (laughs) it's it's like thin marshmallow fluff sprayed inside of a shitty flavorless crust. It's God, it's garbage. I fucking hate it. And I just want sourdough all the time. Oh, my God. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You're like one of those elves. It's like, oh, I only like um, sourdough lemba. So anyway. (laughs) Anyway. Anyway, uh, I also read the section uh, Elvish Journeys on Horseback because I was like, oh, shit. It's about horses and it kind of is, but it kind of wasn't. It's pretty short and it's kind of about like how that basically elves are much faster on horses than humans are. And of so that wasn't are. that great. And then it talks about Aeol, a- who I don't like. So that was kind of like me. You don't like Aeol? Anyway. <laughs> uh, well, no, uh, the, 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 no, the, um, I, I might not be saying it right. It's that guy no, it, who killed was, his wife and. Yeah, no, Aeol the a-hole. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. You know what? I, you got me. You got yeah. me. I thought maybe I didn't mean Aoral. I love him. Yeah. Anyway. And then I read a section called Rider to the White Rider. And basically White it's a deleted Rider. Legolas scene with a horse in it with horses. So you need to read it immediately and then we'll talk about it nice. and we'll, we'll journal it in our dream journals. Sounds good. Yep. Uh, any other, uh, any other thing from the third section? If not, I want to tell you about something. No, please play it on. Okay, me. very quickly. Jude mentioned this already, but Carl Hofstetter did a an Ask Me Anything or an AMA on the Reddit application, and I asked him a question, and he responded, which I thought was really cool. So I just so at Oxenmoot, he had said that he got very good at reading Tolkien's handwriting, and he might be like the best at reading his handwriting, which is great because <laughs> as you know, his handwriting is crazy. And so my question is uh, for him was like, did he find any little notes or musings that surprised him or that made him chuckle? And so he mentioned like the dancing bears, which is like something in the Numenor section. So you got to check that out. But he also mentioned, he said also the very brief but interesting note on dwarvish voices. And so I wanted to point that out because that's in the third section too. And it's, it's called a note, uh, note on dwarvish voices. And basically it's very short and it just says that dwarves are sort of like underestimated as as linguists in that they're not they they actually had great interest in languages but because like they they were like more dormant like they didn't get out and talk to like as many new people as as early as like the elves and men did like they're kind of viewed as maybe like uncreative or like poor linguists but actually no they were really good at learning languages and pronouncing languages and i thought that was nice so anyway i just want to point that out so thanks carl thanks for answering my question that was great yeah yeah. So here's the thing. My my takeaway is there is a lot in here. And no matter your level of scholarness, you know, whether you're like a, a, a seasoned person like Jude or a newer person like me, you'll find something to to grasp onto. So definitely pick up a copy of this book. Yeah. Because I really think you'll enjoy it. And it's it's beautiful. And wow, what a what a gift to all of us, huh? What yeah. are your takeaways? I think that this is a book that on the surface seems very might seem very intimidating, but I think is of all of the histories. And I think this probably qualifies as like the 13th history volume for all intents and purposes. I think it is actually very, very approachable to a casual fan. If for no other reason than because of the way it's structured, which is a real compliment to Carl's writing and editing that he's, really built it so that it's, it is very easy to understand the structure of the book and what it's there to do 
and then find interesting things that you that are you are you are interested in. And that yes. may also be due to the brevity of some of these pieces. It, like Morgoth's Ring, like nothing is less than like 25 pages. And right. Whereas this, like many of these things are like two pages long. So it makes yes. for much lighter consumption. But that's great because you can use this as like a sample platter and say, oh, I'm interested in Elven reincarnation or, you know, counting games or languages and then go look into the histories for for longer pieces on the subject. It's great. Precisely. Yeah. And like, here's the thing, like, I, I think you would be benefited from knowing a little bit, like having read maybe the Silmarillion, right? Or like knowing a little bit more about the world. Like if you've listened to this podcast, this this book is perfect for you because you're going to run into like in these sections about figure yeah, exactly. games, you'll run into like an interesting name. Then you can go down that rabbit hole. Go look it up on Tolkien Gateway and like get that and then follow that that thread through. And man, you'll go to some really interesting places. So absolutely. I really, you're right. I, as you know, you know, from our own podcast, we are very thematic in how we do this podcast. And so this book really dovetails, I think really nicely with how I personally like to do research. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah. I think generally I would say that this is a, a real triumph of a, of a book and, uh, just the highest compliments to Carl, F. Hofstetter, I, you know, he said he put a, a an enormous amount of work into it, and it shows. Uh, it's yeah, he a, said twenty five years it took him to do this. Well, uh, yeah, and it really uh, it paid off because I think it's a a terrific tribute to Christopher and to the professor himself, and it's a real testament to uh, Carl's own scholarship. So I, I can't recommend the book highly enough. Absolutely. So definitely let us know if you had a section you, you liked. Um, let us know on Twitter. We'd love to talk about it. Or we're, oh God, we're kind of in the Discord again. You know this, I don't know, some of you may not know, we have a Discord for this show, and but I'm like the worst at Discord and I never look at it and I'm so sorry. And I love you and I'm sorry for the people that wrote to me a year ago and I never wrote back. It's because I'm an asshole. I'm sorry, but it's kind of going again. So jump on Discord and tell us yeah. what you like. That would be amazing. Also, don't forget, just want to mention it again at the end of the show, the Tolkien Society Autumn Seminar is coming up on November the 6th, 2021. It's online and free. Uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, so make sure to check that out. Yeah. And uh, yeah, have an excellent, excellent and very... Because this is coming out when? This is October, right? Yeah. Ooh, have a spooky October. Ooh. Okay, that's it. The road may go ever on and on, but this episode is over. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps increase our visibility and it makes me feel good. <laughs> you can find us on the web at www.podcast.atherbeth.com. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at Atherbeth underscore cast. My man Jude can be found at Eremitic Jude and I can be found at the North Four. Title music is Lord, Lord of, the of the Devil Rings. Yeah, by Pony Music, courtesy of Pond5. Atherbeth is produced by our good friend James Valar of Removing Mouth Noises, Pearson. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.
I just burped. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Did I tell you about start. the time Aaron got mad at me because I left my, uh, we, we took a break in between uh, Bad Pod episodes mm-hmm. and I forgot to mute my mic. And so I left it hot and went over that way uh, about 30 feet and took a very long piss. And the whole thing was on mic. And so you've done that to James, too. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, well, I don't remember when it was a while ago. He was like, I heard uh, I heard some peeing at one point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad I'm two for two when it comes to to forcing my editors to hear me pee. It's I swear it's not some sort of like display, like some sort of dominance maneuver. I I mean it would be yeah, it's not. I promise, James. You're you're gonna be listening to this. I promise it's not me trying to assert dominance from three thousand miles away. 